630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Here's the staff to Riley's. He drops back. Blue Chiefs looking for Everly. He's throwing. Going to the end zone. Now McDavid walks in right circle. Back to Everly. Touchdown. Eskimo. One-timer score. Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on the voice of your Edmonton Oilers and Eskimos. 6.30 Chad. Well, how was your Christmas? And maybe more importantly, given the date on the calendar, how was your Boxing Day shopping? You one of those people who rushed out early this morning, got in line somewhere, got the best deals, or did you just sleep in? That's what I did. <laughs> How are you doing? My name is Reed Wilkins, Inside Sports on 630 Ched. Today we feature a best of edition of the show, and man, we had a lot of great guests in the last few weeks on Inside Sports. Tonight you'll hear from Daryl Sittler, Justin Sorensen, Matt Dunnigan, and we'll start it off... A conversation I had about three weeks ago with Canadian basketball legend Steve Nash, who was working out with kids at the Savile Centre. Well, Steve, first of all, thanks a lot for joining us. And just being involved with Tangerine and doing things like this with, with kids and going across the country, what is that like? It's amazing. Uh, we've, I've been lucky enough for a few years now to, to partner with Tangerine and build this program a bright way forward. And, you know, obviously to to impact kids' lives in a positive way is important. But the way we're doing it has been educational, rewarding too, just trying to empower them and you know, teach them kind of the principles of participation and inclusion and uh, support and, and encouragement and just empowering them to be the best version of themselves they can be and give them the tools to deal with stress or anxiety or um, you know whatever challenges they may face. So it's, it's been a lot of fun, and I think we've been able to support a lot of great organizations as well across the country that are doing great work. I mean, I imagine that's got to be something that's on your mind is keeping kids involved. I mean, probably when you were younger, there may have been, might have been a crossroads. And, and, and you talk to a lot of players, whether they reach the NBA, the NHL, or just, you know, play university or, or get an education, you know, a lot of times, you know, they, they got to make that decision to stay involved, have family support. How do you look at all that dynamic to making sure they keep going? Well, you know, you're right. Whether it's elite development or just participation, the longer you play sports, I'm, I'm of the mind that the more you get out of life. Uh, obviously, the physical fitness, the release, um, the, the teamwork, the, 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 you know, I think there's also a lot to be said socially. To be a part of a team or a club or whatever it is that uh, gives you an opportunity to have some balance in life. So for kids, an opportunity to continue to play and to feel empowered to play, to believe. Because a lot of kids, I think, you know, they either hit a crossroads where they don't want to play and they need that little bit of encouragement or they don't believe they, they can play or they have low self-esteem or confidence. So you know, we're going to obviously have some, some kids that excel and, and exceed expectations, but it's about getting them as many as possible to play as long as possible and to pass that kind of healthy lifestyle and all those characteristics that come with being a teammate and being in sports down to the next generation. When you were the age of some of the youngsters you're, you're meeting today, was, was there a, an idol you had, a, a pro athlete or an athlete or somebody that you aspired to be like? Well, you know, when I was, I didn't really start playing basketball until I was 13, so, but I was lucky enough, there was a lot of national team guys were in Victoria for training camps here and there, and Eli Pasquale, who 
was our national team point guard for a long time, lived in Victoria. So I, I got to see some of these guys that I wanted to emulate up close and, and even become friends with them when I was in high school. So uh, it, was, it was a, you know, obviously I think an impactful opportunity for me. But, you know, when I was a kid, just like any other, I looked up to Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas and, you know, wanted to be like those guys too. Steve Nash joining us on 6:30. Shed. Uh, in, in terms of the Canadian program, and look, when I was a, when I was a kid in the 80s, you could have listed off the Canadian NBA guys on on one hand. No, we're not. It would take too long in this interview to do it. Um, but you know, there's been some momentum for the Canadian women's team here in Edmonton. The Canadian women's soccer team. You know, the the women's rugby team. Jen Kish is an Edmontonian. The men's basketball team. A lot of people are waiting for them to grab a little more spotlight on the international stage how do you feel that's coming it's coming for sure i mean we're going through a, an incredible period of player development we've got uh i think the second most nba players behind the united states now so it's such an in- birth of talent that is and, and development that's happened in our country uh, as a team and on the international stage obviously we were devastated not to make the olympics and lost uh by a a bucket to venezuela a team that we beat by 27 four days earlier uh in the tournament and you know it just comes down to experience these are very young guys who have very little international experience and you can't cheat experience and they got in that moment and and they didn't have the experience to, to thrive the way they did um prior in the tournament and and so that's a part of the process so my, my wish is just to continue to develop players and as these guys gain experience they'll be a formidable international team but the, the talent part is coming which is hard to do and and then the second part is keeping them engaged in the program you know it's such a different landscape than when i was coming up and you know, these guys have so many opportunities and so much at their fingertips now um, that it, it sounds strange, but keeping them engaged with the program is, is something that's got to be a, it is a challenge, but something that's got to be at the, at the front of everyone's mind within the, the country and the program and to value it and to give these guys an opportunity to, to know what it feels like to play on the biggest stage for your country because there's nothing like it. Your role with the Warriors, uh, and I know I, there was a good Sports Illustrated article about some help you did with getting a pretty big name in the summer, but um, I mean, there's, there's reaching a high level, and then there's staying at that high level, because then you wear the bullseye, right? Then everybody's up for you. How do you see that? Sh- I, mean, I, I think the Warriors are the, at that level. How do you maintain it once you're there and ward off all the challenges? Yeah, it, competitiveness. I mean, professionalism, you know, that there's no way around those two characteristics. Any championship team has that. And the Warriors obviously uh, reloaded. They're, they're, although they have the best record in the league, they, they are, they're still a team in transition. They got half, six new guys or something like that, including a, a pretty big one in, in, uh, in KD. So it's a transition. I think they're still feeling each other out in many ways, but they, from, from my mind, they, they have the best opportunity to win if they can continue to gel and, and, and kind of, more than anything, allow their personalities to shine through. I think you know there's that there's that feeling out period where maybe sometimes they're they're a little subdued or, or um, you know back they take you know you don't want your personality to step on on the on the toes of the room and I think that that's that's a process that's going to happen and when they start to get you know a little more comfortable with each other they're going to improve greatly. All right, I have a standard question I ask for retired athletes: best player you ever played with, best player you ever played against. Best player I ever played with, uh, I'd probably have to say, well, I played with Kobe Bryant, so he's, you know, way up there. Uh, and Dirk Nowitzki, you know, those two, uh, just Hall of Fame guys. And, uh, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of names you put ahead of those two. That's Canadian basketball legend Steve Nash. Man, there's one off the list. Finally got to interview him. Great guy. When we get back, you'll hear from former Edmonton Eskimo CFL legend, now broadcaster, Matt Dunnigan. Best of Inside Sports on 630 Chet.
this is Ryan Eugene Hopkins from your Edmonton Oilers. You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio, 630 Chad. Thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. I hope you had a great Christmas. Matt Dunnigan recently went to Ottawa as a part of a discussion on concussions and what we're going to do about them in this country, how we're going to help young people uh, avoid them and, and treat them when they do get a concussion. But I started off by asking Matt his thoughts on that huge Grey Cup upset, Ottawa over Calgary. Well, easy to kind of analyze it now, but, you know, I think it's, I think a lot of people were taking them, taking them back, but at the outcome. Uh, but difference uh, in winning and losing at that, you know, at this level is is minimal at best. Uh, it's one player, two plays here and there, a bounce this way, a call that way, and, and uh, it's the difference in winning close games, and losing close games. Ottawa two years ago, uh, they they won those close games and and. Uh, and lost in the Grey Cup, and this year they lost those close games, um, and their record was, you know, it showed that and mirrored that, and um, being an eight, nine, and one football team, and but I, and then they were able to put it together down the stretch, and the way they were playing it towards the end of the football season, the way things played out for that team behind the center with Trevor Harris, Henry Burris. It was almost like it was meant to be. You got a 41-year-old quarterback that was on the not on the field often and played his way um, back into into form. And I think the best form that he's ever played in his entire Canadian Football League career. He was on point, playing and spinning the football like I've never seen him before. And it didn't matter what the conditions. Henry Burris was uh, was rested on his game, and uh, and certainly. He takes motivation from a lot of different different um, areas, and uh, he was motivated to go out there and prove everybody wrong and, and gain the respect that I think he doesn't feel like he gets. And um, it was just spectacular. But you look back on it, and um, and you know you shake your head. How could a fifteen-two and one football team play like that in the first thirty minutes of the game? And then you saw what they were made of in the last thirty minutes, made the game sort of extended into overtime. And, it was just, uh, I've kind of been there too, Reed. I can tell you this. Um, being at Edmonton Eskimo, going back to my experiences there, we were there in 86 for the first time. We played the Hamilton Tiger Cats. We lost in 84 and 85, back-to-back years. It took a lot of experience um, into that 1986 Grey Cup game against the young Edmonton team that just got back to the Grey Cup after, after four years of not being there, after five years of winning it. So, we were happy to be there. We were young, and uh, Hamilton had set their jaw. And uh, it was, I think that game uh, was was coined um, man amongst boys, and it certainly felt like that way because uh, we got it handed to us. I think it was a lot to a little, like 36 to 15, something like that. I got sacked 10 times, and um, it was just nasty. And um, I liken this year's Great Cup read to, to that experience from the Red Blacks who had lost a year before came back set set their mind to it and uh, kind of cut Calgary off, off guard. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you know, you you still have a lot of fans here in Edmonton, so I think you'll appreciate this text message I got from a listener named Mark. Uh, hopefully it gives you a chance to brag a little bit. Can you ask Matt about his son, who is a quarterback? I had read a while ago he was quite the up-and-comer. Is that Dolan that Mark is talking about? Yeah, yeah, Dolan, that's him. Um, you know, uh, I pulled him off the football field after his ninth grade year because of uh, too many concussions and being uh, experienced at that point and educated like we all are 
and the seriousness of head trauma of the sport, I can tell you that uh, it was the most difficult decision I ever had to make uh, as a father because typically, you know, you, you want to encourage your kids to do the things they want to do and give them the means in order to make that happen. And I was telling him what he couldn't do, and uh, I knew he wanted to uh, continue his football career, but I pulled him off. And at that point, you know, he's 15 years old, six fat, and um, 6'1", 150 pounds, the string bean, you know. But he was doing things that you really can't teach his quarterback. So fast forward to uh, his high school career. Um, he just focused on baseball from that point forward. Played college ball down here in the States, junior league for um, – and junior college ball for – for three and a half, four years, lost a year of eligibility due to injury. Had one year of eligibility last year. Walked on to the Louisiana Tech football program. Asked my blessing, so I had to get in touch with several of the people that I know, neurosurgeons, to for some advice to get him cleared to uh, give a give it one last kick in the can, so to speak. Um, swan song in his NCAA career. And long story short, he was cleared to do that. Walked on to the Louisiana Tech football team. And I'm not playing seven years of organized football. And at this point, Dylan was six five and a half, almost six six, almost two hundred thirty pounds, and could run like the wind. And he made the team. Didn't know what he was doing. They ran him on special teams, flying down there, blowing people up on kickoff coverage, punt coverage, just having fun. And ended up being special teams player of the year for Tech. Went to a bowl game. They won a bowl game last year. He ended everything in a pretty not pretty positive note. So. Exciting as a parent to see your, you know, all, all my children do well, and it's nice to see Dolan be able to tie a nice bow in his NCAA athletic career. Oh, that's an awesome story. You mentioned yeah. concussions. You mentioned concussions, and that's such a big yeah. part of your life. And, and I know you're right. you always stay involved with it. Last week, you were in Ottawa. I know Eric Lindros was there. It was a bit of a conference just to talk about what we can do in in this country to help with concussions. Matt, um, just where are you at with uh, with how we we guard against concussions or how we deal with them? And, and do you think anything uh, productive came out of talking with some people last week? Well, I think that's yet to be seen, um, but I, I would be very surprised if we didn't have any productivity come out of there. Uh, it was the meeting of the minds. This was four years in the making, and the government general, David Johnston, you know, just basically has been piecemealing this together for the last four years, and he had people from all different walks of community and sports uh, across the country, and um, rubbing shoulders, and collecting thoughts and sharing thoughts and Etienne Blay, myself and Eric were the first panel of the day and we shared our thoughts and um, they were quite candid thoughts and uh, and our stories and, as well as we had Olympians there and we had we had uh, neurosurgeons there we had coaches there we had it was a tremendous group that come together and uh, in Riddell Hall right there on the hill and it was um, it was it was it was a good feeling in the room the entire day uh, and I'd be I, I think we made a lot of progress I think there's going to be a lot a lot of good to come from that uh, conference and, and the Governor General's efforts I can tell you that uh, you know that we're looking for legislation you know we're looking to uh, direct the, the country as a whole on some protocols that need to be taking place from, from the grassroots level on the way up so that you call a number and you get the same diagnosis or same answer to a question about head trauma 
as you would if, uh, if you're in Edmonton or if you're in uh, PEI, Prince Edward Island. Same call, same question, same answer. So uh, this is what was trying to be done, and uh, co- collecting our thoughts and sharing them, and uh, I think there's going to be a lot of good come from that, Reed. Matt, I should ask you before I let you go here, and thanks for being, for being so generous with your time. The, the NHL has introduced a concussion spotter. It was a big story a couple of weeks ago because Connor McDavid, yeah. an oiler, one of the most yeah. famous guys That's in right. the league already, was pulled out of a game. Is that a step in the right direction? Do you think that can be effective, or, or how do you look at that? Well, I, I, think, I think it's wise. Liability issues, you know, alone, I think it's just wise. Uh, knowing... Uh, that it's a fast-paced game, and a lot of, and he may not be aware of it. The guy could take another shot that he doesn't need to. And so, I think the more safety measures you can be put into place, whether it's in the Canadian Football League or or the NHL or whatever platform it may be, sport, public in general, the better off we're going to be. Because we know, we, we now know the the uh, that we're we're educated. And uh, we're moving in the right direction as far as making sports safer for people. And I applaud the NHL for for uh, taking those steps. Canadian Football League, we did it this year. We had we had um, we had spotters in the booth and uh, certainly in the command center every game. So trying to make it safer for those guys to uh, go out there and play the games, put food on the table for their families, and and, uh, and perform for the fans across the league. So I, I think it's a step in the right direction. And um, that's what this is all about. You know, we're, we're not in the dark anymore. Uh, we've come a long way since I played again 20 years ago when I retired. And I can tell you that uh, I'm glad to see it moving the right direction. Uh, encourage your kids to play. Give them the means. Hopefully have the means to enable them to play and go out there and do things they love to do. And uh, on the side, gentlemen like myself, Etienne Boulay, and all the people that were involved last week, we're going to continue to try to make this a safe place, a safer world for everybody. Well, it's great what you're doing, Matt, that you've been open about your own experiences and you're using it for the positive. And I like what you're saying. It's not just pro not athletes. Easy, it's Let's, not easy yeah. you know, opening up about that because oftentimes you get labeled as tainted and damaged goods. And uh, it's not easy to open up about that. Uh, but when asked, I think uh, for the most part, Etienne, Eric, myself, we're very candid about it. And, we love to share that with people because it's like medicine for us as well as anybody else that's going through similar situations. Yeah, well said. Matt, I know Eskimos fans here, CFL fans, are always happy to hear from you on 630. Chet, thank you so much for right. your time, and Merry Christmas. Hey, Reed, I appreciate it. Just one last thing, man. I'd like to say this. Uh, I played hard, and um, and uh, I wouldn't change a thing. I'm telling you, that's the way I played the game. That's my... That was my take on the game, and I'd play it. I wouldn't change a thing. And uh, so that's the way I stand on it. I love it. I love sport. I love the game of football. And uh, I want to see all parents um, putting their kids in pads and helmets and encouraging them to go out there and play the best team sport in all, in all of the land. So that's how I feel about it. That's former Edmonton Eskimo Matt Dunnigan. was great to have him on the show. Coming up to the 630 News, my name is Reed Wilkins. It's the best of inside sports on 630 Chad. Oilers, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Ched. How are you doing tonight? Best of Inside Sports on 630 Ched. NHL legend Daryl Sittler 
recently passed through Edmonton, promoting his new book called Captain, My Life and Career, and Sittler still meets up with a lot of Leafs fans in the West. A lot of people wear their Leaf jerseys, and uh, you know they come out and cheer, and what a Leafs team scores, or even when the Canadians play here, at, uh, the visiting fans are cheering louder than the hometown fans some nights. No, the contrast is there's a lot of people that also hate the Maple Leafs, right? Well, so you run okay. into those that's people okay. as well. We, we, we can accept that, but uh, <laughs> one thing about the Leaf fans now, they're enthused because we got uh, Austin Matthews, we got you know, Mitch Marner, a few other young guys, and uh, we got a good management team there, so hopefully we'll be, com- be competing with the Oilers for the Stanley Cup at some point here. Well, that'd be incredible, and obviously these are two franchises <laughs> that are trying to pick themselves up out after a rough 10 years uh, obviously first of all just in, in the terms of the individual games we saw one earlier this month you mentioned one tomorrow and we're going to have it on 6:30, Chad. Uh, you know hockey's a team game but I know you also recognize you need stars to sell the game and it's special to have McDavid's and Matthews head to head well you have to have the stars and if you're going to win the cup you have to have three or four cornerstone type players uh, you look back when the Oilers won with Gretzky and and obviously uh, with Messi and Paul Coffey and Grant Fuhr and, and even Chicago winning the cups, the uh, three cups, you know, Jonathan Taves, Kane, uh, you know, all those types of players are important to have. We're just starting to, to put those pieces together as is Edmonton. And if you have them, then you got a chance for some, some longevity of uh, maybe winning. When you watch Big David and Matthews and some of the other new guys, and I've asked a few uh, former players about this year over the last couple months since we've rolled into the season, I mean, the, the speed just is, is, is ramped up, ramped up. And, uh, the, I mean, they're year-round athletes. You know, I don't know if, if what you did in your summers, but the whole uh, cycle of being a hockey player is different. Well, it's totally different. I think the kids learn a lot more about conditioning, dieting, um, uh, the whole idea of off ice training for you know quick feet, uh, you know stronger um, muscles, upper body muscles, and muscles. But so that's why you're getting all these great young players coming into the game. And and again, the players are picked from around the world, not only in in Canada or North America. So you see the Ovechkins of the world and a number of good Swedish players and Finnish players. Uh, the kid in. Uh, in Winnipeg, Lonnie, and yeah. uh, it's it's great for the fans and it's great for the games. And then I look as you get older, there's fewer guys that are in their 30s or late 30s that play anymore because there's so many good young players coming in, coming up. I, I interviewed Phil Esposito in the summer, first of all. What, what, an opinionated guy, you probably know that. Uh, <laughs> He said for the first half of his career, he had a summer job. Uh, did you work in the offseason when you, when you played, or how did that go? I, I, I worked not on a full-time basis, but I did lots of uh, uh, out on the banquet circuit and, and stocking. In the, in the summertime when I played junior hockey, you weren't drafted until you were 20. I built swimming pools, and uh, and then um, even when I played pro hockey, I was I taught at hockey schools all summer for the idea that you're going to make some extra money, but you get some ice time while you're doing it. Um, you know, I was one of those guys that I was very conscientious about my, my fitness. I was probably a little bit of the head of the curve when I went to the Leafs in the 70s. The attitude was when I got the training camp as a 20-year-old, oh, you get in shape while you get here, and the guys are having a few beers, and you know, some guys were smoking back then, uh, having a few cigarettes. But, but um, and nowadays, it's not like that at all. You, um, you have a short window of opportunity. It's so competitive. 
and uh, you better do it right or else you won't be there. Somebody else will be there taking the place. Okay, so you brought up something. You, you felt you were a little bit ahead of, ahead of, ahead of the, your time or ahead of the time with some of the off-season fitness and, and training. Yeah. What, what kind of commitments did you do in the well, summer? Well, totally. Like, when I get out and I do some motivational team-building speaking, one of the things I, I say to people, I was fortunate as a young kid to realize the importance of preparation. And preparation isn't something you just getting on the air and starting to talk. You've probably learned your, your trade and you, you try to improve every day and you, you look and, and other people are successful and why they've become successful and how they stay successful. So I knew that as a young kid. So I would train um, even eight, nine, 10 years old. I'd say, if I shoot 200 pucks and the guy that I'm going to be you know, a training camp trying to beat out of a job even at the Pee Wee Bantam level, I have a better chance of scoring more goals and being a better player. Or or I always practice the things I couldn't do well. It's easy to do the things you do well because it's you like it and it's there's no stress or pressure doing that. But if you have to do something, as an example, shoot backhand pucks all day long rather than taking the slap shot, uh, but that's what makes you the better player. Uh, so preparation was a key, and then and then off ice training too. I used to run and and uh, you know push ups, sit ups. When I even when I built swimming pools in the summertime, if I was shoveling gravel or cement, I'd be shoveling it, holding it like I was holding my hockey stick. You know, in in that fashion. You know, I'd still get the job done, but but there was a a motive and a method for you know trying to build those wrist muscles or those muscles that uh, you needed to when I got back on the ice in September. So. That's why I was different probably than some of the other guys. Well, where did that drive come from? And I mean, sometimes it's it can be easier for an adult to have that because you're mature and you're out in the world. But you're <laughs> saying you recognize that as a eight, nine, ten year old. Was that a, a parent? A, a, you know, a well, some... well uh, you know, I don't know. Like I look at my mom and dad. They were both hardworking uh, people. My mom. Uh, uh, she had her first child, my older sister, when she was 16. My mom had three kids by the time she was 19. I was the third child, so and eight kids all together. So you saw how they worked, and my dad was paycheck to paycheck. He was a crane operator. And if you wanted something, the only way you're going to get it is to chip in and, and earn some money or, or you know do the physical work to, to get those sorts of things. So the other thing is I grew up in a small community of St. Jacob's, a Mennonite community, and my mom and dad... Uh, instilled in all of us kids the importance of being a part of a community. Um, you don't be selfish, help out, and, and you don't shouldn't have to be asked to do it. You see it's there, whether it's you know some senior that you're, you're helping, you shovel a driveway, or you, you got a job, uh, you deliver newspapers, or you're a Boy Scout uh, raising money, uh, Apple drives and paper drives and those sorts of things. So a lot of that came from just our upbringing, you know, and uh, and it, it wasn't easy. And at times, like, I remember when I had a summer job, uh, for every dollar I made, I had to give 15% back to the, the house, you know. So if I made, you know, whatever, 20 bucks, three bucks goes back to my, my mom and dad. And at the time, I thought, oh, that's not fair. But it showed me the importance that, hey, you know, the things in life aren't free. You got to earn them. and uh, And it taught me, you know, a lot and why I'm successful today, not only in hockey, but in, in, in kind of being understanding about money and the value of money and uh, and, 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 and and working hard. Daryl Siller joining us on 630 Chet. So you're, you're a young guy. You clearly have the drive and the commitment to play hockey. When did it click in your mind? Okay, I might have a chance to be a pro. I might have a chance to actually be in the NHL and make a living being a hockey player. Did you have that uh, a moment or a season where maybe you thought it was possible? Well, when I was playing uh, minor back in uh, my hometown, um, 
if you were good enough, you could play up a level, and all, and they didn't restrict you. And if you were playing house league and rep team, you were allowed to play both. I guess they needed the players; they didn't have enough players, but it gave me lots of ice time. But what had happened? I left home. I was drafted by the London Knights, which was about 60 miles away from my home, and I left home at age 16. And uh, and when I really thought that I'd have an opportunity to maybe make the National Hockey League was in the summertime when we'd be doing summer skates and some of the pros would come back to London who were playing in the NHL. And I could tell by my level of you know, speed and skill and uh, conditioning that I might have a shot at making it. <clears throat> back then you weren't drafted until you were 20 years of age. So you were a little bit more mature and older. But uh, that's when I first had the inkling. And, and again, I focused on um, everything I did is to reach that goal. And then the other thing is what happens with some guys, you get there and then they, people kind of forget, you know, okay, I worked hard to get here. Now I'm in the NHL. But my attitude was always right to the end of my career to be a better player and a better, uh, you know, conditioned and smarter player than I was you know, the day before, so to speak. So Yeah, well, you had some incredible moments, which we want to talk about, and obviously we want to talk about the, the book, but I, I want to throw one at you here. 30 teams now in the NHL. Um, there's not There aren't as many goals as most of the era you, you were in. Where would somebody with Daryl Sittler's skill set fit into an NHL roster these days? Would you be the a top line forward, a second line guy? Would you be getting 90 points? Would you be getting 60? Can you? <laughs> it's, it's hard to say because, you know, when I, I mean, I was the first Leaf to get 100 points and, you know, you look at the great Leafs that played before me, Keon and Apps and those guys, and they, they might have got 60 or 70. I don't know. So, uh, but then a few years later, Wayne Gretzky's getting 220. <laughs> right. So what's 100 points? You know, <laughs> not a hell of a lot, right? But but where I would fit in, I don't know. I mean, um, you you look at the game and how it's grown, and 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 one of the the reasons the game is so popular now is because the best players in the world are playing here in North America. Yeah, it makes it more competitive for Canadian kids to get those uh, NHL jobs. Um, I, if I look at a player today where I think my style of play and my attitude would be, it would be a guy like Jonathan Taves, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, he comes to play every night. He tries to make the players around him better. He's a good person off the ice. Uh, he's very um, respectful of the game and, the, the, you know, the history of the game and the players that built the game to where it was today. So, um so and people question, they say, well, how much money would you make today if, if you played today? And obviously you would have made a lot more, but I look at it a little differently in the fact that the game is so popular and, and uh, it's growing so much. Guys like me who've been out of the game since 1985, I retired, I still make a, a very nice living because of the popularity of the game. So uh, corporations... Uh, have guys like myself come out and speak you sign some autographs you write a book you do some other stuff that because of the popularity and guys like yourself who watched it back then say hey listen there's some interest in some of these guys that uh, did some good before this is Mark Letestu from your Edmonton Oilers and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Chen. Best of Inside Sports on 630 Chet. Continuing our chat with Daryl Sittler. Why the book? Why write Captain My Life and Career? You know, when you're sitting around with your buddies, you tell some stories that you think are interesting or they might think are interesting. And then my late wife, Wendy, she kept a lot of 
photos and just different things that I had over my career. And, and when I was talking to the public publisher, the Random House uh, people, we kind of came up with this concept and idea of, uh, hey, the fans might be interested. And then I'm saying to myself, maybe my own family and, and years down the road uh, you know, might appreciate having this sort of stuff. So it, it, it forces you to collect it, put it together. And we had a lot of stuff that's not in the book that we couldn't keep. Um, uh, but but I'm proud of the book. I actually, uh, it took a long time. Well, I say a long time, maybe a little over a year to do it. But the things that I like about the book, I know the hockey fan probably likes the hockey stories, but I like the you know my my relationship with Terry Fox. I talk about that. I talk about diabetes in my family. I I talk about Ronald McDonald House being the first honorary chair and where Ronald McDonald House is growing today. So those sorts of things are in the book because when somebody reads it, it might inspire them to get involved. I've always believed and still believe if you sit on the sidelines and do nothing, every day you get up and I get up, I have a choice of how I'm going to live that day. You do too in your attitude. And then you have a choice of what you're going to do with your time. And sometimes somebody will come up to you and say, can you help out? Can you do this? And I found through my career, not only in hockey, but afterwards, those things that I got involved with, uh, I never regret. And uh, somehow, in some way, it comes back to you in different ways. And I mean, I remember visiting Sick Kids Hospital. My wife, Wendy, and I, we didn't have any kids. We'd go Christmas Day because we knew those families, you know, those kids, poor kids were in hospital on Christmas Day, and we would take leaf pucks and, you know, memorabilia stuff to the kids. But more importantly, we uplifted their, their Christmas Day, made it positive. Now, here I am all these years later, somebody will come up to me, hey, Daryl, I don't remember you coming to Sick Kids. I had a broken leg at the time. That six-year-old kid will never forget that, you know. And so I, I try to encourage, you know, even our current guys, as much as we all blow them up to be bigger than life, so to speak, but if you can stay grounded like a, like a, uh, 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 you know, uh, Sidney Crosby is or a Jonathan Taves or you got McDavid here, that to me is more important and, and, and the measurement of a good all-around quality superstar than the guy that just does it on the ice and kind of forgets all this stuff around him, you know, so yeah. that's kind of who I was and, and, and still am today. Well, and there are some great stories in there, and you mentioned, you, know, you talk about your, your family, and, uh, you know, it's not, it's a, it's a very honest book, you know, ups and downs you go through, so I think fans will, will appreciate that. One of the big ups, and I'm going to ask you the one question you've been asked about 20,000 times, but it's so noteworthy. February 7th, 1976, you got 10 points against the Boston Bruins. And I know you've been asked this so many times, but uh, it was a historic night in the history of the NHL. I mean, do you still, do you, I know it was 40 years ago, do you still pinch yourself that you actually got 10 points in a game? Or Well, it's one of those records because it's uh, every year it comes up. And, you know, I think Gagne here uh, about seven or eight years ago got eight points. So it, it reminds uh, people of it. But, I don't really pinch myself other than I say, okay, 10,000 games have gone by. Wayne Gretzky's played, Merrill Lemieux's played, and uh, a lot of great players, and they've got eight. So it'll be a tough record to beat. I'm proud to hold it. I'm, I was proud to do it in a Leaf uniform against an original six team. And at that time, the Bruins were good. They weren't a, it wasn't a weak team or anything. So, yeah, uh, the record's great. I, I hope it lasts for many, many more years. But having said that, you and I know in sports, sometimes the unknown, unexpected thing can happen, and it happened to me. And 
it might happen to somebody else another day. Who knows? Like Ottawa beating Calgary in the Grey Cup, maybe. Well, hey, that was I didn't get a chance to see it because I was on the plane coming here, but everybody says it's a pretty entertaining game, eh? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I got I, I interviewed Tony Gabriel earlier today. Yeah. And you, well, you I guys know I, each other? Yeah, I know Tony from back in the 70s. I, I was at that game and watched that game when he got that winning yeah. touchdown back in, I don't know, was it 76? 76, 76 as well, yeah. Also, yeah. Tony's a great guy, and, uh, and uh, yeah, that was, those were fun, uh, fun days watching the, the CFL. I'm not a big fan. I'm, I know out here the CFL is very big, especially Saskatchewan. I in Edmonton too, and there's lots of rivalries here. I follow a little bit in Toronto, but not not as much as the people out here. All right, um, I, I interviewed Lanny McDonald a couple of years ago, and we started talking about Harold Ballard. Yeah. And uh, to paraphrase what Lanny said, uh, he said Harold was often more concerned with the headlines than the quality of the team on the ice. Um, I know you have a couple stories in here about Harold. Uh, I mean, just when you look back on him and his effect on the Maple Leafs and, and your career, I don't know if you would sum it up the same way Lanny did or, or how you remember it. Well, you know, Harold was, yeah, he was uh, larger than life, colorful, loved the media. His wife had passed away, so he really didn't have anybody. And King Clancy's wife had passed away, so the two of them were like frickin' frack. And, you know, when the media were around, they would throw things out there to, you know, to get the media's attention and and that was a distraction for the team uh, a lot of times um the the thing that i was bothered a little bit about ballard was when the world hockey came along and teams like canadians kept their players or traded them away and got draft picks back harold's attitude was hey if they want to go to the wha let them go well we lost a, a lot of good players in that period of time and then uh, obviously after that they drafted guys like lanny and tiger and borea and we recouped recovered from that but um to me it's hard enough to play the game you don't need those other distractions from an owner and and stuff like that um but at the same time when i scored the overtime goal in the canada cup he had the uh, the uh people who answer the phones at maple leaf gardens say they, it's the home of daryl sittler when i scored the 10 point game uh, he gave my wife and i a beautiful tea service set and he was good my my issues started to come uh, uh uh, in a stronger, more difficult way when Punch Imlach became the general manager. And Punch was kind of old school. I was the captain. I was the vice president of the Players Union. I had no trade contract. And he wanted to challenge myself and the other players on stuff that just wasn't right. And he could either back down and say, okay, you have it your way, Punch, or you stand up for what you believe in was right. And I did that. And when you do that in Toronto, it becomes the soap opera and the headlines of every every newspaper and every every um broadcast so uh it wasn't much fun playing in those days but we and and punch ended up trading guys like lanny and tiger and uh you know the nucleus of a team that knocked the islanders out who went on to win a number of stanley cups traded those guys and the leafs took a long time to recover from that yeah a couple more for you first one's going to be a little (coughs) bit off the wall maybe you, you, one of your stops was with Philadelphia. Do you still have a set of Cooperalls? <laughs> Those Cooperalls, I didn't like the Cooperalls. I was the old school where I always put my pants on after I had my skates done up, and the Cooperalls, you couldn't do that. You had to put them on before, but uh, that was a fad. <laughs> Not a good one. <laughs> All right, uh, I got a standard question I always ask uh, former players. Well, it's a two-parter. Who was the greatest player you ever played with, and who was the greatest player you ever played against? Well, I played with this player both with and against Bobby Orr and uh, and when I say that uh, I played with him in Team Canada 76 when we yeah. won the cup and I played against him when he played with the Bruins and and unfortunately for Bobby his career was shortened because of his his 
injuries to both of his knees, but in the 70s, he was the most dominant player. And, and that's no disrespect for Wayne or Gordie Howard, you know, Guy Lafleur or Mario Lemieux. They're all great players, but Bobby was one of those guys at that period of time, which I thought was the greatest player. Uh, I lied. I got one more. Okay. If you could sit down with Austin Matthews or Connor McDavid <coughs> or Patrick Laine and they needed a, a minute of a minute of advice, if you only had them for a minute, what, what would you say to some of the young stars coming in? Well, I would say just be who you are and 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 how you got to where you are today. Don't change because of that. You know, stay focused on that and don't think you're something you're not because you're not. Um, and uh, enjoy it. But again. Um, be prepared, be the best team guy you can be. I, I think the measurement of a of a player is how his teammates think of him as, as a teammate and as a player. And to me, that's more important than what the fans think of you, what the media think of you. It's what your teammates think of you. And, and you know inside, you know, whether you're cheating the system or, or you're cheating your teammates. So just be true to yourself and true to your teammates. Daryl Sittler, great to have you in town. Again, the book, Captain, My Life and Career. Thanks so much for your time. Good to see you. Thank you. That's Hockey Hall of Famer Daryl Sittler. When we get back, you'll hear from Eskimos center Justin Sorensen. Why has he chosen Edmonton over Vancouver? He'll tell you. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.